helping in a Civil War regiment? What were the conditions? What were the conditions of camaraderie, of rations, of shelter, of clothing, of combat? We'll talk with these about these details with Mark Dunkelman, author of a Regimental History of the 154th New York, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next auction. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today is Mark Dunkelman, author of Brothers One and All, Esprit de Corps in a Civil War Regiment. And that regiment in particular is the 154th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment. Mark, I was really struck reading this book by the, uh, the depth of the picture you were able to paint of what it was like to be among the men, uh, how they lived day to day. One of the things that, that I, I particularly was struck by was the, the fact that they had a sort of catchphrase when things were going particularly poorly. Uh, who wouldn't be a soldier? Who would not be a soldier? And that just, uh, you know, the 19th century is an era of sincerity, not irony like we live in today. People aren't always sarcastic the way at least 
my my kids are certainly, and I imagine mm-hmm. most people's. But in that case, I think they were being sarcastic. Well, exactly. That that they the man wakes up covered with snow from a snowfall. He, he's sleeping under. You know, in frigid temperatures covered with snow, and he wakes up, and who would not be a soldier? Exactly. Uh, what a great line. I, yeah. I got such a kick out of that, that, that it just brought the humanity of these guys in an identifiable, ironic, 21st century way. Uh, well, you must have had the, the feeling that you were among these guys, too, after, after all the research you've done. I've had great success and, and luck, frankly, in working on the 154th for 30-plus years now. I've connected with more than 900 descendants of members of the regiment who have very graciously shared with me 1,400-plus wartime letters, 25 diaries, photographs of, golly, I don't know, close to 300 of the men, I think, at this point, uh, memoirs, all sorts. I've got a room full of stuff, my, my home office here, which I'm sitting in, full of memorabilia and documentation and archives of the 154th New York Volunteers. And so, uh, while my first book was a true regimental history, it was co-authored with Mike Winey of the U.S. Army Military History Institute. Mike is the former curator of special collections there. That was a a standard regimental history, the who, what, when, and where of the uh, regiment. Uh, my second book was a look at the most famous human interest story to emerge from the regiment, that of Sergeant Amos Humiston, who was found dead on the Gettysburg battlefield with nothing on his person to identify him but the ambrotype photograph of his three children, which he had clutched in his hand, which proved to be the sad clue to his identity and led to a tremendous wave of publicity and notoriety throughout the North, became one of the best-known human interest stories of the battle and indeed of the war. In my third book, Brothers and One and All, the one under discussion, I return to the collective history of the regiment. And I, Jerry, I can't remember exactly when I started asking myself or, or being curious about this concept of esprit de corps and realizing that this tremendous body of documentation that I've assembled over the years could answer questions about esprit de corps. How and why did it develop? How it manifested itself? obstacles it had to overcome, and to me this was very important. Now, How it was carried over into the post-war years in the form of veterans' commemorative activities. It, it, you make a point in your book of distinguishing between esprit de corps and morale. Yes, I see them as two different phenomena. Explain that. Esprit de corps, the dictionary definition that I use, is a common spirit among a body of people that... Uh, engenders devotion and loyalty and high regard for the honor of the particular group. Morale, on the other hand, I see as the psychological state of an individual or a group in reaction to current events. So, in other words, the 154th New York could have good esprit de corps after the Battle of Chancellorsville. In other words, the soldiers were still very devoted to the regiment, were very solicitous of the reputation of the regiment, and yet their morale was at a low because of the tremendous losses the regiment had suffered in the battle. So they are in in my mind they're two different different things. And they maintain this esprit de corps throughout uh throughout the war and, and the, uh, while the morale fluctuates. Yes. Yeah. 
Now, and I have a chapter on, on morale which showed showed its fluctuations. Uh, many Civil War students are familiar with the the very depressed spirits in the Army of the Potomac after Fredericksburg and the Mud March. Mm-hmm. And the 154th New York, uh, still relatively new to the Army at that point, was just as down as the rest of them. And uh, an, an, another reason to credit Joe Hooker for something was uh, his... Uh, Tremendous improvement, the tremendous improvement in morale that occurred in the Army of the Potomac after he became commander. One of the things I particularly liked about uh, the book, in terms of describing these individuals, is that despite your obvious devotion to the subject and the years you put into it, uh, it seemed to me you made an effort not to romanticize the situation unduly. And you mentioned that that there are some jerks in the regiment. There are some shirkers. There are some. Uh, uh, this is not an ideal band of brothers. This is a real organization of human beings. Like any Civil War regiment, no doubt. And and I, I argue in my book that I think that my findings are applicable to regiments north or south in the Civil War in general. Uh, there were certain peculiarities that made the 154th different in, in regards in some regards, to other regiments. But uh, overall, I think you can describe them as a, quote, typical, end quote, regiment. And, of course, there were shirkers, and the most loathed of all were deserters. Then there were also the fellows who uh, sought to evade duty by self-mutilation, and I detail some of those. Now, not everybody who shot off uh, a finger or chopped off a toe was looking to evade service. Accidents did happen. But uh, there's other, there are other um, cases that are pretty well documented to have been uh, intentional cases of self-mutilation to get out of the service. Um, there were officers who were incompetent. By the time of Chancellorsville, five of the original ten captains had left the service. No doubt this was a good thing mm-hmm. because they were incompetent, they were alcoholics, uh, they couldn't get along with the men. For a variety of reasons, they were gone. And eventually, by the end of the war, the regiment had a group of officers who had largely risen through the ranks and proven their mettle and proven their ability to deal with the men and and, uh, and lead. They had proven leadership qualities. And the regiment was a lot better off with the officer corps it had in 1865 than the officer corps it had when it left Jamestown, New York, for the front in 1862. And I imagine that that probably is typical of most regiments. Now, you said most of these officers rose from within the ranks. Uh, you told the you wrote the interesting story of Major Tanek, who did not. Oh yeah, that was that was an interesting case in that uh, the original major was one of the early officers to leave. He resigned. Samuel Love. And Colonel Patrick Henry Jones of the 154th New York appointed a captain to take his place and submitted his recommendation to the governor of New York, and they were awaiting a commission to arrive for Captain Dan B. Allen to become major of the 154th New York, when lo and behold, all of a sudden, out of the blue, this Albany blue blood shows up, Jacob Tanike, who had served with the uh, 3rd New York Infantry, armed with a commission as major in the 154th New York. Well, the uh, the day after he got there, every officer of the regiment signed a petition suggesting that he resign that commission 
because he was not wanted in the regiment. He was an outsider. And Colonel Jones endorsed this uh, petition and added that uh, if Tenike was, in, to paraphrase, if Tenike was smart, he would uh, heed this petition before more drastic measures were taken, whatever those might be. Well, Tenike saw, saw the handwriting on that wall quite plainly and uh, submitted his resignation. So he served as major for, I don't know, five days or thereabouts in the 154th New York. And before too long, Dan Allen's commission came from the governor, and he became major of the 154th New York. There were several cases of these outsider officers uh, appointed to the regiment, and only one of them wound up sticking with the 154th. And he was an assistant surgeon named George Bosley, who joined the regiment in Savannah. And I think the reason that he stuck was that he he was needed. They They needed an assistant surgeon at that point, and uh, he fit in well with the men. None of the other four wound up staying with the regiment. So one of the things I start out with in, in discussing Esprit de Corps is these regiments, as you know, Jerry, were communities of their own, representing communities back home. And that was a, an integral part of Esprit de Corps, the sense of community that they took to the front with them and they carried with them through the war. Uh, the 154th was the most representative unit to leave Cattaraugus County. Eight of their ten companies came from Cattaraugus County. However, there was a, an earlier regiment, the 64th New York, a very fine regiment in the 2nd Corps Army of the Potomac, that became known as the Cattaraugus Regiment, although they only had only six of their ten companies were from, from Cattaraugus County. So the 154th occasionally was called the Cattaraugus Regiment, but they eventually got an unusual nickname of their own. They were called the Hardtack Regiment after they were caught engaging in some unscrupulous trading for hardtack with the uh, German members of their brigade during the uh, their 11th Corps service. And I think that that was a sign of esprit de corps, the fact that they had that nickname and they they gloried in it. They gloried in calling themselves hard tax until they were 80-year-old men. Um, I, Esprit de corps manifestations were sometimes you don't wouldn't normally think about them. I discussed Civil War camps as an expression of Esprit de corps. They took great pride in their in their camps, their winter camps in particular. Um, and the 154th would brag that they were the best axemen in the brigade and could put up winter quarters faster than uh, any of these sauerkrauts. They, of course, shared the prejudice against the Germans that was common in the Army and and uh, decorated their streets with evergreens, etc. But a true sign of esprit de corps was naming these camps. The camps were named after martyred officers in the regiment. Camp Samuel Noyes, named after the adjutant of the regiment, killed at Chancellorsville. That, to me, is a true sign of esprit de corps and, and regimental pride. The regimental pride... I'm sorry, go ahead. Which is a component of esprit de corps. It, absolutely. Yeah. The the uh, the regiment at Chancellorsville you mentioned was, uh, was ultimately driven back, as the entire 11th Corps was that day, by Jackson's flank attack. And in the uh, official reports and in the, the letters you quote, you talk about how the regiment held its ground while some of the other regiments in the same brigade gave way 
until finally the 154th had to give way also. Mm-hmm. What struck me about that was how that is an absolute paradigm for officers' reports uh, in the OR of a retreating unit. Invariably, the regiment on my left gave way, the regiment on my right panicked, and then reluctantly and in good order, the boys fell back. Uh, but if you read the report of the regiment on the right, he says the same thing. My flanks <laughs> gave way, then I fell back slowly. Right. Uh, and again, it seems it adds to the, the, the representational quality of the 154th. Uh, they do fall back at some battles. They, they go forward at others. But when they fall back, it's always the fault of the flank units. Uh, and I wonder if the flank units wrote the same thing. On the other hand, Jerry, uh, and I discuss this in the book, mm-hmm. some of their reports, uh, particularly the Atlanta campaign, initially at the Battle of Peachtree Creek, they were driven by the Confederates. And this is admitted in the official report of the reg- regiment, which, as you indicate, was somewhat rare. That is unusual. Yeah. Now, I base my claims of the 154th having stood longer than the other regiments, not on the regiment's official report of the battle, which incidentally never made it into the OR. Hmm. Um, a copy of it, I discovered a, a copy of it in a regimental letter book in Ellicottville, of all places. And uh, it also, I don't base that claim on the letters that were sent for publication in newspapers, which often were very self-serving as well. I base it just on the overwhelming evidence of of uh, the soldiers' letters themselves, which universally comment on this on this, and I think that the case is also buttressed by the casualty counts for the brigade. The two regiments on the right, the 29th New York and the 27th Pennsylvania, had casualty counts of fewer than 100, while the 73rd Pennsylvania and the 154th New York, which held the left flank of the so-called Bushapak line, the uh, 73rd had casualties of over 100, and the 154th, as I already mentioned, had 250 casualties. And the 154th always claimed that half of the 73rd stayed and fought with them. And as a result, they always had a higher respect for the 73rd Pennsylvania through the rest of the war. Well, that, that uh, in some ways, the numbers are the best evidence there of how they did. I'd like to, uh, you touched on earlier something about the post-war career of the men. We're going to take a break now, but we'll come back in a minute and talk about what happened to the boys when they stopped being boys. We'll be back to discuss that and other topics with Mark Dunkelman in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 